Now is my head cut off? No. No, my head's not cut off it now? It is not cut off. Okay. It looks fine. Well, you said it zoomed in, so I wasn't sure. I've never seen it. It literally huh. zoomed in. Are we live now? Yes, you're That's live. That's awkward. Hello. <laughs> Uh, welcome to Theology with Coffee. Uh, my name is Taylor Wood, and uh, my co-host is you have my microphone. playing around. I have your microphone. There we go. My name is Taylor Wood, and this is... I'm Kelson Wolverton. Yes, and uh, as always, we are just uh, the height of professionalism. Absolutely. Uh, so, this is Theology with Coffee, deep, uh, sorry, casual conversations about deep biblical truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are getting into Joel chapter 1 today. Right. So, very exciting, uh, very exciting stuff. Uh, before we kind of get to that, do you have any announcements or anything you want to let the people know? Uh, again, if you're wanting a journal, uh, we can get more. If you're not around here um, in the O'Donnell, Lubbock, Texas area, and you're like outside of the state or far off, like we would love to send you one as mm-hmm. well as a friend. So if that's the case, comment on here or our listeners email theologywcoffee at gmail.com. Yeah. And another reminder, we have uh, we now have a podcast that you can listen to. So if you don't catch us on Facebook Live, uh, you can find us on Buzzsprout, Spotify, and iTunes. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of those places, you can find Theology with Coffee. You can just search Theology with Coffee and you should be able to find us. Um, or ask us and we can send you uh, a link to that. And so that's a good way, especially if you're driving, if you're on the road, to be able to listen to this content uh, if you're not able to watch live. Right. And also, always feel free that if you have any questions or would like more information about certain things we talked about, we would love to respond back to you. Mm-hmm. So just thought, throw that out there. Or maybe you, you have a book, a next book of the Bible, you're like, we should totally do this. You yeah. can put it in consideration. Yeah. Um, so right now we're going to continue with the book of Joel. And as a reminder, we did have, uh, last week we did the overview to the book of Joel. So if you haven't listened to that, you're going to want to listen to that at some point. We talk about the whole book overall. Mm-hmm. We talk about things like authorship and date, uh, structure and purpose. And then we close out by talking about a few of the themes. So that's a good overview of the entire book. Uh, and then this week we're going to jump into chapter one. We're not sure how far exactly we're going to get. We'll kind of play it by ear today. Uh, but we'll be moving through chapter one. But if you missed it last week, you want to be sure to listen to that overview of the entire book. Absolutely. I guess with that, uh, Kelson is going to open us up with a word of prayer, and then I will read our, our chapter for the day. Great. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come to you right now, and we just ask that as we dive into Joel chapter one, that the Spirit would just, again, reveal insight about who you are or Uh, what you're trying to say in this historical context, Father, and how we can apply it in our own daily life. And I also ask that the people listening now or even later, Father, that that this would be a time of pondering, of meditating, of studying it as they continue to do those things, the better they are to be able to interpret what you have to say. Give us the words to speak, uh, govern our words, let the words of our mouth and the meditation of your heart Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we just praise you. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Joel has a very quick beginning. It's going to jump straight into things. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read through the first 14 verses. So if you have your Bibles, you can read along with me. Chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. 
Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail for the drinkers of wine because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste to my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, and all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of the Lord. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Okay, I'm going to stop there. I actually think the ESV that we're reading puts a section break between verses 12 and 13. I think the better section break would actually be between 14 and 16. Uh, and I'm going to show you how this is kind of has a unified structure throughout verse uh, 14. But here we have this first opening chapter, and it opens fast and furious. Right. Uh, Joel doesn't give us much in way of an introduction. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, uh, as we talked about last week, we don't even know what time period this is or who Joel is, because all he tells us is that his name is Joel, he's the son of Pethuel, and we don't know who Pethuel, Pethuel is, is, and so it jumps into the story. Right? All we know is that the word of the Lord came to Joel, which is really important. Yeah. Yes. Um, this has given Joel what many commentators have described as a bit of a timeless quality. And that's not to say that other books of the Bible aren't timeless, but the fact that we can't identify a specific period of history mm -hmm. means that it's always possible to be able to look at this book and understand uh, that it is speaking to us today. Uh, the one thing we do know for sure is that this seems to be on the backs of this great natural disaster, uh, which at least is presented on surface as this swarm of locusts that have destroyed the land. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the setup of, of the entire book. Uh, so verses th 2 and 3 give this introductory statement here. It says, Hear this, you elders, give ear all the inhabitants of the land. And it says, Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. And so this is really sort of Joel's introduction here in two, uh, verses 2 through 3. And right away as you read this, what are the things that stand out to you uh, that you take note of here in, in verses 2 and 3? Yeah, so um, I, think I'll, I think what Joel is saying, yes, this is happening modern, like at that time period, but also I think it's reminding them of, again, we talked about how locusts, we see that back in Exodus. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, David even mentions in Psalm 105 of 
the story of Moses and the people of Israel. And so if to me, it's like not only is this happening, but your children of children and generation to generation, just like the Passover was supposed to be passed down of reminding people how God brought his people out of Egypt, they should have known the the things that because of God being a jealous God, as well as a, a God who cares mm-hmm. and that there would be judgment and consequences for those sins and for things to happen, these would be reminders. And so I think, and again, it's not only a, a warning now, it's also remind them not just now, but even later what happened in the past. Yeah. Yeah. He addresses two specific groups of people and, and he's going to address these uh, later on as well. Right. He talks about the elders and the inhabitants of the land. And right away, this is a major difference between Joel and the book we just read with Hosea. Right. Hosea is also talking to the, the inhabitants, but Hosea talks a lot about the kings. He talks a lot about the priests. He talks a lot about um, the religious authorities in the land of Israel at that time. Uh, Joel, his intended audience here is, again, these two groups of people, elders and inhabitants of the land, presumably the land of Judas, and so much of this is centered around the temple mm-hmm. and Zion and, and things like this. Um, did you find any significance to these two groups, the elders, the inhabitants, anything in particular? Uh, mostly the elders would be people who have seen, you know, who are older and uh-huh. have experienced a lot of things that have already happened within Jewish history. Okay. And then the inhabitants are just the people of the, the people. land. Yeah. yeah. Elders were not only those who were older in ancient Israel, but we also see that the elders in the Old Testament uh, take on an administrative role right. in Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, they ha- help out with legal disputes. Uh, they are given a sense of authority in mm-hmm. the community. Uh, they are um, uh, they help make sure that the community is running properly. They even help in religious functions a lot. And many times the elders are described as representatives of the people. Right. Maybe that'd be a good modern mm-hmm. way for us to think about this, this idea of representative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he's talking to the representatives, the the sort of um, on-the-ground-level leaders for the people and also the inhabitants, the people who dwell in the land, the people mm-hmm. who are affected by, by all of this. And then there's this familiar theme that we see a lot in the Old Testament, this idea of tell your children. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so this is written in an ancient context where there weren't public schools. Uh, there weren't TV shows. There was no PBS or, or anything like this. The job of educating children belonged to the family. Okay. And so it was the, the elder's job, it was the family's job to make sure that your children and your children's children do not forget what has occurred, understand the significance of this. And so, as you said, this is an indication that this book isn't just meant for one generation, but this is meant for many generations to come to understand what God is doing during this time. Yeah, and it would all be by oral, by like telling, explaining through story over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a good place for me to talk about this. You, you'll notice here uh, that Joel starts with these two commands in verse 2 and 3, hear and tell. And if you're reading carefully or if you were listening carefully earlier, you're going to notice that there are a lot of what we call imperatives mm-hmm. uh, in this chapter. Now, I'm going to make you think back to your high school grammar. Uh, an imperative is a command word. Okay, and it's usually in the second person, either plural or singular. Uh, Although ancient languages did have a third person imperative, Uh, that sounds a little strange because we don't use it in English, but they had that. Uh, But imperative is a command. That's another way for you to think of it. 
This section that I read actually has 18 imperative verbs uh, throughout this entire section, hmm. which gives it this tone, this urgent tone, yeah. right? Joel is not just describing things that is happening. He's calling people to respond. And right here in these first two verses, he is saying, hear and tell. Listen to what my words are and be sure to tell other people. And so right off the bat, there is this urgency to Joel's message that is communicated through these imperatives. Now, there's 18 different verbs, but interestingly enough, and, and I know you're, you're going to love this, they're sort of grouped within seven different stanzas. Ah, uh, and so uh-huh. the, there are seven stanzas, each of them beginning with mm-hmm. one of these imperative verbs. And here's the first two right here mm. in verse two and three, hear and tell. And I'll point out the others as we go through. But those imperatives really show us the structure. And again, it's seven sets uh, of these imperatives that we're going to to see. And another interesting thing, and I'll talk about this as we go in the chapter, they get more frequent as the chapter moves forward. Mm, Which makes sense. So it's going to get more and more intense as we get to number six and seven uh, as, as we move forward in this chapter. But right off the bat, he catches our attention by saying, hear. Yeah. Okay. Hear what's going on and tell. Don't just hear it and keep it yourself. Tell others about this message. And so what is this message? This is where we get to this verse 4, where it enumerates these four different types of locusts uh, that have destroyed all of the different crops of of Israel. Mm -hmm. Um, So verse 4, what stood out to you here? Yeah, pretty much to me it's saying like... (laughs) The locusts literally destroyed everything. Mm -hmm. There is nothing left. The locusts, the cutting locusts left, then the swarming locusts ate it. The swarming locusts left, then the hopping locusts ate it. And then the hopping hopping locusts left, and then the destroying locusts. Meaning like, it's all wiped out. Every locust that you can ever think of (laughs) um, has literally destroyed demolished like the land itself of uh-huh. Judah. Yeah. Yeah. Um, these are the four terms here, cutting locusts, swarming locust, hopping locust, and destroying locust. These are all one word uh, in the Hebrew. So there's four different words here. Uh, they're all different words. Um, they're not referring to different insects per right. se. Yeah. Uh, instead, they are, they, they, well, there's a couple of different theories on this. One is that they're referring to the life cycles of a locust. Yeah. And so the cutting locust at the very beginning would, would basically refer to a locust that has uh, just uh, matured to the point that it is starting to uh, uh, swarm and eat things on its mm-hmm. own. Uh, and so it's out of the larva phase and it's now in the phase where it is a true locust and it's eating and devouring things. Uh, the next level would be where they start growing uh, wings and they can't fly yet, but they can hop along as they go. And then the final, the destroying locust, would be then a locust that has wings and can migrate and travel. And, and it's gone from eating what's around it to jumping from field to field to kind of uh, kind of devour it. Um, there's other theories that, that perhaps this is just a poetic way to describe uh, the, the locust or the idea that this is not just one locust swarm that arrived, but this is a long process Mm -hmm. where the land is given no rest from these locusts that just keep coming. I don't know, did you read anything or see anything that that might have described more specifically what these four different types of locusts are? Yeah, no, I I saw those theories. Um, I also thought or 
someone had the theory of like the locust meant like specific, like you said, not a long time, but specific times in mm -hmm. history, which I thought was interesting. But ultimately, no matter what theory you, I think, have, but I think Joel is just doing this as a beautiful poeticness of saying it like just judgment has come yeah. in all forms of that and aspects mm -hmm. and that as we'll see in the chapter there is nothing left yeah of creation like of survival like it is all gone and eaten mm -hmm. yes um interestingly enough ancient and medieval hebrew interpreters whenever they looked at, at this passage uh, they took this very symbolically and they actually believed that the cutting locust referred to Assyrian Babylon, the swarming locust referred to Persia, the hopping locust referred to Greece, and the destroying locust referred to Rome. The idea being that Joel is actually mm. prophesying through the periods of history, much like Daniel does in the book of Daniel. Yeah. If you think about the way that the Dan Daniel talks about the beasts and uses these different beasts as representations of these different empires mm -hmm. and, and things like this. Um, which to me brings up, I think, one of the first big interpretive questions we need to ask, which is, are we talking about literal locusts or is there something behind that? Are the locusts the symbol of something else? Uh, and I'll let you speak to this first. Uh, what, what do you think? Do you think this is meant to be taken literally? Is it meant to be taken symbolically? Or is there a little bit of both mixed in? I think there's a little bit of both. Okay. We kind of saw that with Hosea, right? Of this like story of him and his wife Gomer, mm -hmm. you know what I mean, in real life, as well as then there's this inside core more of the like Hosea and Gomer are a representation of how God sees his people. Mm -hmm. And I think in the same way, I think locusts did come, but there's also this symbol, this underlining of um, a prophecy, of vision, of foretelling of what God is doing. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that's the exact view that I take. I, I think that this is talking about literal locusts, and I think this is talking about a, a period in Israel's history in which these locusts caused great, great. devastation. Mm -hmm. In fact, one of the things I think we're going to see a little bit later is, as I said, the land was, was there was no rest the land got. It yeah. was relentless. Every mm -hmm. single crop, no matter when that crop was planted, these locusts came and, and t took out. So the people never got reprieve from these locusts for an entire year, yeah. which would cause unbelievable uh, destruction and chaos to your economy, the religious system, as we're going to see. Right. And so this is talking about a, a real natural disaster that happened in the history of Israel, and Joel is reflecting upon this. But there are typological um, and prophetic themes stretching forth that, that Joel is going to use. Now, I think it goes a little bit too far to identify these as those different nations right. the way that Daniel does. Um, and nothing in the text certainly indicates that. You would have to have a, give it your own allegorical spin to it. But Joel is, in this text, going to connect these, these, this past day of disaster with a future day of the Lord. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're going to see that as we move through the book. And so Joel sees this not just, he sees it as a real historical event, but it's a historical event that has eternal consequences, that has eternal significance. Absolutely. Well, and, and talking about not only with um, religious, you know, uh, and creation, I, I haven't thought about this. Um, the festivals for the Jews, they all had to deal with land mm -hmm. of of food. And so that even with that, you couldn't even celebrate the holidays. Like literally it was day after day after day of, of to them, 
judgment. Yeah. There was no break. Yeah. Yeah, which I thought was just really interesting. I never thought about connecting the festivals that they all have to deal with. I, the I think land you're right. The food. And there's going to be a lot of sort of um, hidden's not the right word. Um, a lot of very subtle religious language is going to be coming up in this mm -hmm. chapter. Yeah. Um, that if you're not familiar with things like the festivals and the customs of the of the the priesthood, you're going to miss this language. Yeah. Um, but it would have been very obvious to this audience. Uh, okay. So verse uh, so verse two and three sort of give this this call to action. Yeah. Hear and tell. Verse four tells us about the crisis. Mm -hmm. It says the locusts have wiped out everything. Now, verse 5 moving forward is going to be the response. It's yeah. going to be, what, what should we do as a result of this terrible loss, this terrible disaster? And right away, he starts with this command, Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine. Okay, So this is our, our kind of third set of imperatives here. And here we have this, this triplet, awake, weep, and wail. But the force is put on the idea of awake, you drunkards. Uh, he says, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. And uh, I'm going to stop there for just a second. But what do you think this this first kind of, what is Joel getting at as he commands the um, the drunkards to awake? Yeah, stop uh, sleeping or pretending like, every, you know, numbing the pain about what's happening. You know, I think not just literally, but just in general. Mm -hmm. Again, the people have not been telling their ch generation to generation to generational. It's just kind of like, <laughs> um, I'll do me, you do you. And, and, and just even right here, we see that um, one of the things about the region of Israel um, is a, it's a great place to like have wine. And mm -hmm. so even that, the, the economy, you know what I mean, for to, to sell, to make wine, to enjoy, um, all that is now destroyed. Yeah. Like there's nothing left. And so awake you drunkards and weep, turn away from whatever is going on innermost and repent. And mm -hmm. we'll see that, like that command Joel's going to get into. But awake, all, the thing that you rely on is now no more. Yeah. You can't even have that as like your focus, like your number one mm -hmm. um, anymore because there's nothing left. Yeah. It, it to me really speaks to the hard heartedness and insensitivity of the people. Um, because rather than, you know, th this is speaking of a time before these locusts came, uh, it was a time of decadence. It was a time where people weren't paying attention to these threats. And, and even when the, the locusts came, I, I think of the, the picture of the house burning down and the person just like, it's fine. Everything is fine. You know, that's kind of what's going on in Israel right now. Mm -hmm. the, everything is falling apart. And you have the people of Israel, rather than, uh, rather than responding in humility and seeking God, like drunkards, they're sleeping through it. They're literally mm -hmm. sleeping through the disaster that's all around them. Well, and I think there's probably also that um, that image too of like, well, we're God's people. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, yes, this is happening, but we'll still be taken care of. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that's going to come up a little bit mm -hmm. later with some of the stuff we'll, t we'll talk about. Um, so yeah, before, you, know, you notice that b before Joel can call them to repentance, 
you got to start by waking up. Mm -hmm. Because if you're asleep, if you're ignorant of the disaster that is around you, you have to wake up and you have to pay attention. Yeah. And so he says, hey, wake up, you drunkards. Uh, wake up and realize the disaster that your nation, that your country, that your people are under right now. Um, stop ignoring it. Stop numbing yourself with, in this case, alcohol. Yeah. Uh, and actually pay attention to the problems that are all around us. Mm -hmm. um, from there, he's going to once again give very poetic description of, of what these locusts are doing. He's going to compare it to a powerful nation, so use army language. He's going to compare it to lions and the fangs of a lioness. And he's going to talk about how they stripped down and laid waste to these very important crops. This is in verses 6 and 7. Anything you want to comment on that, with that in verses 6 and 7? Yeah, again, it's nothing edible or alive. It mm -hmm. is complete destruction from being taken over by an army that's as terrible as lions. And remember, lions specifically with that region killed not just humans, but your flock, like the sheep, mm -hmm. like your cattle. They were, they were a nuisance, uh, uh, something that you didn't want around at all. And then that fig tree, that language, stripped off their bark, thrown it down, the branches are made white. Literally, it's like you have taken a tree, which mm -hmm. we know trees are hard, you know, to cut down with an ax. But literally have cut down it, have stripped it, buried it, where literally it is nothing left but dust. Mm -hmm. And that is what the people have become, and yeah. yet they haven't woken up. Yeah. yeah. I, I think this verse, verse 6 in particular, is it's really tempting for people to take this with kind of eschatological or supernatural mm -hmm. kind of connotations because, again, it just seems ridiculous. Like, well, how is a locust like an army and, and like a lion that seems, that seems to disconnect? But we don't realize today how destructive these creatures could truly be. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, one ancient witness, uh, a Roman historian, talked about how they witnessed during a, a, um, uh, a locust swarm, the locusts was, would eat the doors and the frames of houses. Mm -hmm. This is how intense these things were. So imagine this thing with a voracious appetite and innumerable just massive amounts of these things that you couldn't swat enough to kill them, right? Unlike a lion that you could hunt down and kill or an army that you could defeat, there's no defeating a swarm of locusts. Yeah. They are everywhere and they are literally destroying and eating everything. And again, this is this is bringing back, you've already mentioned this, but kind of this, this Exodus language. Mm -hmm. So in the book of Exodus, locusts was the eighth plague, is that yes, correct? Yes, that's correct. So mm -hmm. The eighth plague sent by God against Israel or against Egypt was this plague of locusts that he sent. And interestingly enough, in Exodus chapter 10, verse 14, the very same language used to describe the, the locust there is as an invading army. Yes. It's described I saw as that. an invading yeah. army. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's not an accident. Joel no. knows, knows that. Yeah. And he's reusing that same language. Now, let me ask you this. Why do you think Joel would take a passage from Exodus about locusts judging the wicked nation of Egypt? and seemingly use the exact same form of language and the exact same poetic imagery to now talk about these locusts invading Israel. Yeah, so it kind of goes back to what we talked about last week. I think of this cool connection of the, and we'll get really into it, but that day of the Lord, it's judgment and deliverance. Mm -hmm. It is both. Um, and in, in the same way here, even though the locusts were for Egypt, not Israel, um, we see that 
here. And I think, again, locus was number eight, and we talked about eight means redemption. Mm -hmm. So in a way, I think it's also this prophetic and this metaphor of though destruction is happening um, to God's people, God still is sovereign and is still going to take care of them after because of the promise and the covenant he has given generation to generation to generation. Mm -hmm. Yes. And isn't it interesting that whatever is going on in Israel, they are now being treated with the same divine contempt yes. as Egypt was treated in the book of Which Exodus. Which shows how far they have run away yeah. from what they were supposed to be called and set apart. And this is this goes back to this idea of a wake up. Yeah. Wake up and mm -hmm. realize that you right now are as bad as Egypt was in the book of Exodus. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's kind of what this is communicating. Absolutely. Uh, verse 7. Now, this is interesting because it lists two specific crops here, the vine and the fig tree. Now, as we're going to find out, there's a lot more that got destroyed. And so this should lead to the question, why is he specifically mentioning the vine and the fig tree here? Well, Israel was known for both the vine and fig tree. These mm -hmm. were very... Um, uh, these were very well-known exports of the nation of Israel. Uh, the vine and fig tree, interestingly enough, whenever Israel scouts the land in the book of Numbers, yeah. uh, two of the fruits that they bring back are they bring back vines yep. and they bring back figs, figs. to show mm -hmm. how uh, wonderful the land is. So there's the little Old Testament connection. The vine and fig tree also both a part of the list of seven fruits of God's blessing in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 8. Mm. So if you aren't familiar with this, God is going through the, the wonderful bounty of the promised land before Israel enters it. And he lists seven specific fruits. It's not that Israel only had these seven fruits, but these seven fruits were in particular signs of God's favor and God's blessing. This is wheat, barley, vines, figs. There's those two, pomegranates, olive, and honey is what these fruits were that, that mm -hmm. God lists. Uh, these fruits were, were almost sacred to Israel. Uh, in fact, any time a, a Jew eats, uh, even to this day, whenever they eat any of these seven, they have a special prayer that they pray over these seven yeah. because, again, the connection back to Deuteronomy oh, yeah. chapter 8, mm -hmm. verse 8. So I don't think it's an accident that Joel chooses the vine and the fig tree to talk about not just how bad the locust swarm is, but in particular this religious language because these two fruits in particular were connected with God's favor and God's grace upon the land. Well, and then I think it's also foreshadowing what he's about to say too with the offering you had to have the grain, the barley, the fig, and the oil or mm -hmm. you know or the wine that was part of that and now they don't have that anymore yeah. so it goes with the religious factor as well yeah yeah okay um verses 8 through 10 we have our our fourth set now of these important imperatives or commands that we get uh the last one the third set was all about wake up you drunkard now in the, verse 8 we see lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for her bridegroom of her youth uh, again, this is just um, tragic poetic language that he's he's using here. He's saying, you know, you should be sorrowful now, just like a uh, betrothed woman who has lost her betrothed, who has lost her fiance before the time of their marriage. Yeah, uh, this is how how tragic the situation is, um, and and the, you know she's been looking forward to this day from her youth. It says right and her her 
husband-to-be is, is snatched away from her. You know, how would she feel in that kind of a situation? Well, Israel, this is the way you should be lamenting. This is the way you should be responding. Uh, anything you want to mention on that? Yeah, no, uh, I would agree. Because as a, as a female, especially back in biblical times, it was important to marry and continue the generation, you know? And so not only were you looking forward to what you said, but it was it was part of that duty of continuing to leave the legacy and mm-hmm. the fact that she can't do it. You know, I think of um, going back to the story of Ruth, you know, even though she did get married, like her husband dies, and then, you know, Naomi, her mother-in-law. And I think um, that just gives a visual picture, you know, as a woman by herself, it's hard to function within that biblical time period. Yeah. And so just even with that, the the agony, the pain um, of expectation that now is now gone, there's a lot of emotions. And so in the same way, Israel should be like that. Mm-hmm. And then that sackcloth, I think we'll see that a lot. But see, some people, I don't know if actually know what that actually means, but that sackcloth was... Um, there was a specific goat or like sheep that was black and it was hairy and they would wear it and it was very itchy. Yeah. And so you would wear that and like I said, you're itching and then you would throw ashes on top of your head and like repent and fast and wail. Mm-hmm. And so there was this act of, again, showing <laughs> humility as well as just humiliation of trying to give that out. And so um, we'll see that more, but just kind of give a description of what that actually means. Yeah, I've always imagined this uh, or kind of compared this to like going around and wearing uh, clothes made out of burlap sack. Yes. Right? Uh-huh. And this this phrase sackcloth. I mean that that's what the stuff, stuff is for. Is it's for storage. It's mm-hmm. for keeping. You know, um, it's for stacking up in a warehouse. And and so you're talking about very coarse, very uncomfortable. If you wore it long enough, it would probably give you blisters and rashes. Mm-hmm. This is the sort of thing that's talking about. Yeah. And as Kelson said, this was a a common way to express grief, lament, and mourning mm-hmm. in the ancient world. Um, and and he's saying, look, just like this this bride uh, in her or in her heartbreak uh, will wear the sackcloth as a sign of her mourning, you should be mourning the same way. Yeah. Now notice the parallelism between uh, verses five five and seven, which we just talked about. It starts with a command, mm-hmm. wake up. Then it moves to a word picture talking about the drunkard uh, who is uh, not getting his wine. Uh, and then it gives a very poetic description of the destruction that the locusts have brought. Well, verses 8 through 10 do the exact same thing. Yeah. It starts with a command, lament, gives a word picture, the virgin who loses her bridegroom. And then it's going to give a very uh, vivid uh, poetic description of the destruction that these locusts have brought. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Um, One of the things I want you to notice off, uh, again, the parallel here, verse 9, it says that the grain and drink offering are cut off. Well, in verse 5, talking Mm -hmm. about the drunkard, the wine is cut off from your mouth. mouth. It uses the same word here. It uses the same uh, Hebrew word, and it uses a word that means uh, to exterminate, to destroy, hmm. to violate. Mm-hmm. Uh, used in different contexts, the same word also has the idea of divorce, to uh, uh, null, nullify a covenant. 
Um, this is a very religiously significant word. And so he's using this word as, as sort of a description of what the locusts have done. But I think in the background is this connotation of, hey, this is God's judgment. Mm. This is because of your violation of God's covenant. Uh, he is nullifying that covenant. He is revoking the blessings that he is giving you. And this is this cutoff language that's being used here. Uh, anything you wanted to mention there? Yeah, so that grain offering and drink offering, um, this is symbolized as a continuing fellowship with the Lord within the temple. This would happen twice daily, and mm -hmm. it was continual. Someone always had to watch it. And not only was it as this fellowship, but it also fed the priests too. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is a beautiful word picture because what Joel's trying to say is not only is it a spiritual deficit of the fact of there, the fellowship with God is no more, mm -hmm. but it's also the physical too. Yeah. And um, I won't go into detail, but that's one of my applications is how the physical and spiritual are both connected. Mm. And we kind of see that right now mm -hmm. within this word picture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're right. The grain offering and the drink offering, these were two of the most common offerings that were given. A lot of times when we think about temple, we think about the animal sacrifices. Right. And there were animal sacrifices, but much more than that, there were these grain and drink offerings that were given. And, and realize what he's saying. He's saying, hey, the destruction of the nation is so bad that we can't even do the grain and drink offerings that right. are taking place at the temple. Okay, so let's let's try to, to personalize that since we're not used to grain and drink offerings mm -hmm. and locust swarms. Okay. Imagine a famine so bad that we can't even have grape juice or the little wafers for the Lord's Supper. Like that's how bad the food shortage is. Yeah. We can't even do that because we've given it all away. Imagine a drought so bad that we're so low on water that we can't even fill up our baptistry. Okay. Imagine that the economy gets so bad that we can't even turn on our air conditioners and turn on the electricity to be able to worship, but we're worshiping in the dark, okay, on a Sunday morning. This is the kind of thing that he's getting at here. This is how bad things have gotten in Israel. And these are things that should be getting Israel's attention. They should be lamenting over these things because it has interrupted even the most basic forms of their worship and the way that they relate to God. Yeah. Um, and uh, notice once again, I'll, I'll, I'll draw attention to this again. Notice the fruits that, that are listed here. Uh, the grain is dried up, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. Once mm -hmm. again, we have this mentioning of the, the Deuteronomy 8 fruits that, mm. that are, are part. Oil is made from olives. Yeah. Uh, and so that's the olive tree. So they, they've lost even more of those Deuteronomy 8 blessings. As this passage goes on, more of those fruits of Deuteronomy 8 are stripped away mm. uh, as, as it goes through, which, again, I think is an interesting parallel. Yeah. So anything else you want to mention on 8 through 10? Uh, no. Mm -mm. All right. We have our fifth set of imperatives. Be ashamed, okay? Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. This is verse... 11. So once again, we have a command, we have a word picture, and we have a description of all of the chaos and destruction that the, uh, that the locusts have left in the land of Israel. Here, he calls on the tillers of the soil to be ashamed. Why do you think he uses that language there? Yeah, because again, um, the part of 
like back then was farming. Mm -hmm. That was an essential, you know, even here in O'Donnell, a lot of our people are farmers, like of relying on the land, of being careful of the fact of having much rain, not having much. And even here, the tillers of the solar, there, there is nothing left for them to do. Mm -hmm. Even if they worked hard, there would be no pro produce. There would be no reward. And I think that goes back to like what we talked about with the um, Jewish festivals. Like all of them had to deal with the land of the lunar calendar. And even now they can't even, they can't even function in itself. And if they do, there is no reward that, or a bounty that's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. If, if the previous verses emphasize the um, broken religious functions of Israel, this is emphasizing the broken economy yeah. and, and what's going on. Um, and, and first of all, let me just notice, and, and maybe I'm getting too far into applications, but isn't it interesting that, that we're almost like the opposite now? Mm. We talk about how bad the economy has gotten. We've talked about how you know, bad inflation is. We talk about how uh, hunger problems and poverty problems before we start talking about the spiritual issues. Yeah. Uh, Joel reverses Versus that. Them. Yeah, absolutely. And he says, look, the, the biggest and primary problem is this broken uh, fellowship that we have with God. Yeah. Because the grain and the drink offering are both connected with that daily fellowship offering. Yes. This was the God dwells in this place. We're going to have a meal with God mm -hmm. kind of element. So he says that's the big problem. Um, flowing from that problem is all the economic problems. It's all the suffering that the people are going through. Uh, and, and yeah, as you said, this is highlighting the economic destruction that has happened in an agrarian society. Uh, as a result of this. So, you know, uh, again, it's it's not hard for us to imagine this, um, especially since we live in an agrarian area. Yeah. And we understand what happens during a time of drought. But even if you're living in a big city, city. you know, imagine the kind of chaos that's created by a housing bubble that, that crashes. Yeah. Uh, think back to 2008 and the financial crisis that went on then. Think back to the last year and the crisis that has happened. You know, you have people throwing themselves to their death and suicide because their poor portfolios are being wiped out. This is the sort of stuff that's happening. It's, yeah. it's the complete destruction of an economy right. um, as a result of all of this. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and he says, so the harvest, the field is perished. He mentions wheat and barley. And guess what? That's two more now of the Deuteronomy 8 fruits. So you notice, once again, Joel is very intentionally stripping away the blessings that God has given to Israel, specifically those Deuteronomy 8 fruit. Um, the vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, there's another one, palm and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up. So destruction of, of all of the locusts that have come and, and everything is done. And here's one thing I wanted to note here. These different, uh, in verse 12, the vine, the fig, the pomegranate, the palm, and the apple, these are all fruits that have a harvest at different times of the year, mm. okay? So I think what this is saying is it's not just one harvest that was destroyed. Right, it's But every, every. single harvest that year, okay? And again, here's where it's hard for us to understand because guess what? If there's not rain on the South Plains and we can't grow cotton, well, guess what? Right now there's lots of rain in, in, in Kansas and they're growing plenty of beans and corn, right? right? Um, or if, if a cotton crop fails, maybe a wheat crop does well. No, this is every single crop. These locusts show up every single time the Israelites plant something and they destroy it for the entire year. 
Yeah, so think about America mm -hmm. and every crop there ever is in every state not functioning or working for a year. Yeah, and, and I think it is hard for a lot of Americans, especially those who live in cities, to understand just what an impact that the crops and the farms and stuff like this have. Yes. But again, imagine there's no clothes on the shelves yeah. because all the cotton is gone. There's no food in the grocery stores. For there's no food things. in the grocery stores because, because not only are you not growing the, the, the vegetables that you eat, but guess what? All the grain that the cattle eat, it's all gone too. Right. And so all the cattle are And then dead. eventually, then you have no meat mm -hmm. because the cattle can't eat. So you have no meat, you have no grain, you yes. have no vegetables. The bread starts running out no. because there's not that wheat to mm -hmm. make uh, flour with. Right. Uh, this is an utter collapse of everything mm -hmm. is, is what's, what's taking place here. Um, and, and that's what Israel is experiencing through this. The fruit is gone. Everything is gone. Um, anything else you want to mention on those verses? Uh, no. Mm -mm. Okay. Um, and it sort of gives this final little, so pomegranate, palm, and apple, and all the trees of the field are dried up. And gladness dries up from the children of man. Okay, so it's been talking about this economic impact of, of all this stuff and sort of the final underlining statement that he makes here in this section is basically uh, it, it has gotten so bad that even children don't have joy anymore. Yeah. If you think about a child, like a child, even in rotten circumstances, can smile and and have fun and be glad. You know, I, I've been, I remember when we went to Africa, and we were in some very poor areas of Africa. We were in some very difficult areas of Africa. Even there, the children laughed and were glad. Uh, but Joel is using this imagery of saying, it's gotten so bad, even the children don't laugh and play anymore. Mm, yeah. uh, and so just imagine that. Imagine how bad it would have to get that even children don't laugh and play anymore. Right, yeah. No, absolutely, you know, and because I think of too, like when I was in Laos, like when some families barely had nothing, they were the most joyful people that I've ever saw, you know, mm -hmm. and and the fact that, like you said, kids are so um, amazing of trying to find the positive mm -hmm. of being optimistic and the fact this, it's like there is literally everyone's depressed and, and it's just not, and it, it's just horrible. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's one thing for adults to be miserable, miserable. for a child, child to be miserable. That's that's, that's a whole other level. Mm -hmm. um, so now, if you're reading along in our ESV journals, the ESV breaks this section up into a new section. And I humbly disagree with the editors of the ESV here because it's breaking up our little imperative string that we've been working on. I think the proper break is going to come after verse 14 because we're still going to get a lot of these imperatives. So verse 13 is our sixth uh, set of imperatives. It says, put on sackcloth, lament, O priest, wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, mm -hmm. because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of the Lord. Even me reading that, you can understand how it's still connected to the stuff that we've just been reading. Yeah. So I don't know why there's a section break there. But... Uh, here now, it's gone from the misery of the people. Now he's giving a specific thing for the priests to do. He says, put on sackcloth and lament. We've already talked about a little bit about that, that sackcloth and what would, would happen. Of course, the first time he talked about it, he just said, hey, if, if a bride lost her husband, you should expect she would wear sackcloth. Right. Now it's a little bit different because he's saying, hey, priests, yeah. you guys who don't seem to care about what's going on, you go put on sackcloth 
and you lament. Um, what do you think the significance of, of this this set of uh, imperatives here in verse 13 is? Yeah, it's saying, you know, going back to, you know, the elders, like these people, even the priests, y'all are the people who are supposed to encourage and help and show the way of mm-hmm. what it is to have harmony with God. And so if we're going to start off with somebody, then do the priests, show the people, encourage them to repent. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, bring back again, we talked about that grain and drink offering, that fellowship is no longer there at the temple. Bring it back, come back to what it is and repent. That's all. And I think it goes back to what we talked about in Hosea and even now, and we see it, God just wants a heart that is willing to just repent. Like mm-hmm. all it takes is for that one part to say, God, here I am. I'm sorry. Like, you know, please forgive me. And God will always hear a repentive heart. Mm-hmm. And that's what God is asking of his people. Yeah. And if it's going to start with somebody, Joel saying, start with the priest. Yeah, that's really what I got out of this is this idea that, you know, Joel is saying, hey, if, if the people are going to do it, the priests have to start it. Yeah. They have to be the ones who are leading. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, the priests are just as bad as the drunkards yep. earlier in the passage mm-hmm. where they're not awake. They're not paying attention to the disaster that, that Israel is going through. And, and maybe, you know, you're reading this and you're like, well, how could people not be paying attention to this? Uh, I don't know. Sometimes I feel the same way about what's going on in our <laughs> world today. How can people not be lamenting over the things that are happening? But that perhaps they're miserable, right? but misery does not equal repentance. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, we all know people who things happen to them, they get miserable and they blame and get angry at God and things get worse. And so just because they're miserable does not mean that they are lamenting in a biblical sense. Right. And that's really what Joel is calling them mm-hmm. to, is this this act of lament, uh, of repentance, of returning to, to the yeah, Lord. Yeah, because I think it goes back to of when people are miserable, they still try to figure out their way mm-hmm. of how to fix it. Instead of saying, in this, it's like, there's no way we can fix it. Mm-hmm. The only thing we can do is look up. Yeah. And that is to God yeah. because literally everything's gone and destroyed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love this phrase go in, pass the night in sackcloth. You know, something that is true for all humans ever in the history of the world is we like to be comfortable when we sleep, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you, you put on your comfortable pajamas, you get comfortable, you you know get in a soft bed. Nobody likes sleeping in miserable places. Uh, we can walk around all day in a suit and feel fine about it. You know, right. we love it, but we can tolerate it. As long as when we get home, we get to be comfortable. He's saying, look, okay, this is how serious this is, guys. Go get your most uncomfortable clothes. Go get the worst thing that you would never sleep in, and that's what I want you to sleep in at night. Like, that's how miserable you need to be as you are lamenting and thinking about this tragedy. I think it's a very strong word picture here Mm -hmm. that he gives uh, of this. Uh, And again, he mentions the grain offering and the drink offering. And he said, this is how bad things have gotten, is that you're not even able to perform your basic functions. And, you know, maybe... And it's really hard for me not to jump into to applications as we're going through. We're almost there. We're almost there. <laughs> but, you know, maybe, maybe this is a, a set of priesthood who's just like, well, you know, we can't give the drink, gr- drink offerings. We can't give the grain offerings. I guess we'll just sit back and relax. You know, maybe they're even relieved by the fact that the temple is interrupted mm. and that worship is interrupted because their hearts weren't in it anyway. They didn't care. Yeah. And so now they're like, well... We can't go to worship. We can't do these things. Oh, well, 
And Jill's like, hey, <laughs> I can stay at home and do nothing. I get to stay at home and do nothing. Yeah. I don't have to worry about all Where those duties because, <laughs> you know, it's we can't worship right now. Mm. And Jill's like, no, you still got work to do. There's yeah. a lot you need to do. In fact, you need to be more focused than ever upon this. And I've held back on application, but I want to get back. I want to circle back to that right. idea. Well, and I think, um, I, I think a reminder for everyone again: the the Holy Spirit hasn't come into play. Mm-hmm. Again, the people went to the temple to experience the Lord. Yeah, and even that, there is nothing. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't even. I can't even imagine uh, all this is happening. And the fact, you know, I mean, and even the place where to go it to experience God in harmony, there is no hope whatsoever. Yeah. It literally is like dark. Yeah. And I just want to remind people of that because I think sometimes we forget, you know yeah. what I mean? Because even if we, you know, the church is the people we've talked about it, but when God dwells in our heart, like he's consistently with us. But in this time period, that is not, that has not been fulfilled yet. Mm-hmm. I, I, great observation. There is spiritual darkness, yeah. and apparently the priests don't care. And they don't care, which and is Joel so is sad. To say, hey, wake up. Yeah. You know, pay attention. It should be heartbreaking, and yet the, mm-hmm. that's not, yeah, they don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, verse 14 then gives us our seventh set here of, of, um, uh, of imperatives. And whereas verse 13 focuses on their personal repentance, now he's saying, okay, what do you, how do you need to minister to the people? What do you need to do for the people? Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants. So there's the mention of the elders and inhabitants again. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord and cry out to the Lord. And this is where I would put that first section. Mm-hmm. Right. So we move from priests, you need to lament, to priests, let's do what you're supposed to do and get the people together specifically to cry out to the yeah. Lord. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this? Right. You know what I mean? All of you, you know what I mean? Not just the priests. All of you come together mm-hmm. as a nation, as God's people to lay it all down. Mm. You know what I mean? Yes, the priest should be doing it, but it shouldn't just be them. It's everybody. Yeah. You know, and um, not going into application, but how often are we really bad of like, well, <laughs> The, the ministers or our government, they can do it. Mm-hmm. We'll just follow along instead of being like, no, we're all in this. We're all in this together. High School Musical. Um, <laughs> sorry, I was about to bust out in song and I stopped. Uh, but yes, it's just like it's everyone. You know what I mean? It's not one person's problem. It's all of your problem. Mm-hmm. And I think um, you see, especially in this passage, people are like, well, it's you know what I mean? I have my own things. You have your own things. It really doesn't matter. Instead mm-hmm. of being like, no, it all matters. This affects everybody. Yeah. And if it affects all of us, we ourselves as a people need to lay it and repent and give it to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. This this idea of consecrating a fast and calling a solemn assembly, uh, this is attested to in a lot of different places in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. One of the first places I think of that has an interesting parallel would have been uh, during the reign of King Jehoshaphat when there is a massive army coming into the land that is that Judah has no hope of defeating. Um, Jehoshaphat actually does this. He calls for all Judah, even all Israel, to come and seek the Lord. Uh, and they fast and they pray and they lament. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they come and, and seek the Lord. And the Lord responds to that. He delivers them from that great threat. In fact, it's kind of a cool story because he tells them, hey, go out 
and I'm going to show you how I'm going to deliver you. And they go out and they find the armies wiped out. And then God says, okay, go plunder them. You know, so it's kind of this cool story of God completely wiping out these enemy armies and then saying, now you get to go take all of their goods and bring it back. And I'm actually going to bless you through mm-hmm. that. So in the same way, Joel is saying, hey, th- this is how serious we need to take this. Uh, you know, the enemy is at the gates. Our nation is falling apart. The people's hearts are far from God. And priests, you are not doing your job. And so what you need to do is you need to call people together. Again, this sort of, in the background, you have to wonder what is the historical context of the book of Joel that usually it would be the king who did this. Why isn't Joel telling the king to do this? Why is he telling the priest to do this? And if you want more details on that, go back and listen to our overview because we talked about some of those periods in time Mm -hmm. where the king would not have had authority, but it would have been priests or elders who would have had authority in the land. And so Joel is saying, call this fast, gather the people together um, so that everyone can repent. And again, this this statement, cry out to the Lord. Cast yourself upon him for his deliverance. Yeah, and like you said, it's it was really common. Again, I mean, um, you know, I think of David, I think of Solomon, I also think of judges. Though mm-hmm. um, sometimes the judges assemblies they didn't do it. They didn't mean it genuinely until like the third time. But <laughs> it's a common practice. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Um, okay, so I think this is a good time. We're going to hit pause here, and we'll come back and we'll we'll pick up at verse 15 next week uh, as we finish off the book of Joel. But I want to go ahead and transition into our, our applications of just for these first 14 verses. Uh, and I think there's a lot to talk about here. So I'm going to start with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is, uh, as you're looking at this, you know, what, what should we take away from this chapter? Yeah, so uh, I mentioned before, but... I think an application, and I think this is really hard to wrap our minds around, but for the um, biblical mind, this was everything, again, about the um, the fact that the physical and the spiritual are connected, you know, of uh, there there is still, you know, even though this is happening now in our lives and even with COVID and, and all the destruction and the economy, there's still a spiritual side of this, you know, underlining of it, of the fact of um, darkness, of uh, why things sometimes happen the way that they do because of the, as, as human nature, we are not righteous, as Paul says. And so I think an application for me is that those things are connected. They're not inseparable. Mm-hmm. But that's really hard for, I think, our Western mind to wrap around. Though for the biblical mind, that meant everything. Just like how we've mentioned the heart, mind, soul, they were considered one, not compartmentalized is how we would do that today. Sure. And um, I guess something we didn't really, uh, I had meant to talk about when we were interpreting this and and I kind of glossed over it, but there's a few statements in here about how God says, this is my land. This is, you know, my people. Um, And to that point, I mean, God views things in a cosmic viewpoint. Um, and when the land of Israel is suffering, it's not just that it's Israel's land. It's right. my land. It's my land. This is the land that I picked out, that I planted, that I established for my people's sake. And so God is lamenting too. God is weeping over this as well because Israel's went to be, meant to be a new Eden. Right. And when we go back to what we talked about last week, creation's doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like not only is we are in bondage and are held 
but even creation is weeping mm. for justice to come into play. Yeah. And we see that especially in Joel about all the fruits, all that stuff, the land, it's crying out mm-hmm. in pain because of the suffering of just even with humanity. Absolutely. Um, and, and God is sort of, he's trying to awaken the people to the spiritual reality behind what they're experiencing yeah. in front of them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you, you mentioned in our Western mind, I, I think we have a problem with treating the spiritual as if it's not real or less real. Yes. We're like, okay, there's a spiritual, but let's worry about what's right in front of us. I think a lot of this is, uh, yes, due to Western culture, yes, due to sort of uh, the enlightenment and, and some of the things we, we uh, went through, is, uh, especially through the scientific age and things mm-hmm. like that. But I also think a lot of this has to do with sort of um, Hegelian and Marxist philosophies that have worked their way in. One of Marx's great crit- criticisms of the church is, oh, you church, you just talk about spiritual things, but you ignore people who are suffering and, and, and the poverty and, and the, the heartache around you. And in a lot of ways, whether we realize it or not, our culture has kind of adopted this idea of what really matters is the things that are right in front of us. God cares about those things. Right. But what's truly real is the spiritual reality behind those things. Mm-hmm. Our focus should never be just on the physical, uh, just on you know poverty, just on hunger. Okay, these are problems. But Joel is calling the people not to wake up and fix economic problems. Right. He's calling them to wake up and fix their spirits. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And if we go around just putting out. Uh, or addressing the symptoms without dealing with the sin rot at our hearts, it's not going to do any good. And honestly, don't we see that more today? Oh, we see that all the time. I think it's that influence of Marxism. Marxism, But you see, hear me out, I'm not dissing, but lots of nonprofits Mm -hmm. all focusing on the physical things, which are just as important, hear me out, but there's still that spiritual underliningness. So um, side note, great book about all that. When helping hurts, I forget mm-hmm. the authors, but that tie it talks about what we're talking about yeah. now. And I don't know. I'm going to be a little more strident than you are. Uh, don't you think that it is downright evil and demonic to teach people that the only thing they need to worry about is their physical needs? And that's really what what we do in the Western culture. Yeah, we teach people. Okay, the only thing you need to worry about is you know how much money you have. Um, Marxism, one of the central um, what uh, values of Marxism is that envy is good. Mm-hmm. You know, the Bible teaches envy is a sin. Right. Uh, Marxism teaches envy is good. Yeah. That you should envy what other people have, and that in fact you're entitled to have what other people. Yes. Have. And going back to that American dream mm-hmm. of of having being successful in all these areas instead of what it is now. You know yeah. what I mean? Continue to look ahead. Mm-hmm. And uh, like you said, even that physicalness, um, yes, it's it's satisfying now, but it's not satisfying in the future. Yeah. It only fixes the problem in the present, not in the end. Absolutely. Yeah. And if the church is not, you know, the only thing that the church can do that the world can't is provide the the, the gospel and the Savior, Jesus Christ. So if we neglect that to deal with all these other other things and really adopt this, what, what I think is a very worldly, a very ungodly view that the thing we need to worry about is people's physical needs, then all we're doing is we're making people's road to hell more comfortable. And to me, that's 
That's evil. Mm. That is demonic. Yeah. Um, and, and, I, and I think that Joel is actually addressing this issue yeah. of saying, hey, the problem here is a spiritual problem. Absolutely. And so that's where I see the physical and spiritual, they're both connected. Yeah. Yeah. Instead uh, of several. Let me kind of use that to segue into something else. For uh, sure. You know, this verse 13, and, and this really, I didn't even write this down when I was preparing. This is something that kind of came to me as we were talking about this. But this whole failure of the priests and, mm. and this image that, that I kind of painted here of, you know, that they can't do the offering, so they're just sitting at home comfortable and they're not worried about it. Well, again, immediately one of the things that jumped out to me is, and you mentioned it before, but how a lot of churches responded to COVID. Yep. I think there's a lot of pastors, I think there's a lot of church leaders that were relieved to shut down their churches. Yeah. And there's a lot of church leaders who said, no, we don't need to open back up the church. I mean, we had a global pandemic. We had global fear, global anxiety. We had people questioning whether they would survive the next year or not. If ever there was a time to have churches active in the community, it was then. But instead, we had weak, feckless leaders kicking back and saying, the world doesn't need the church right now. Yeah. And to me, that is the exact same thing that these priests were doing. Mm. At the moment when Israel needed spiritual leadership the most needed is hope. when the priests ran away. Yes, absolutely. They needed that hope. Mm -hmm. And so my application there is just very simply, I, I think religious leaders have this duty to lead through this time of crisis. Yeah. And we've, we've got this so backwards in America right now. We feel like the time of crisis is, is when the world needs to come together and work together. The time of crisis is when the church should shine the brightest during that time of crisis. Uh, instead, though, in time of crisis, the church just kicked back and said, no, we'll shut our doors and do what the world wants us to do. It's the exact opposite of what God actually calls. And so for listeners, beware of religious leaders who show cowardice, who run and hide during times like that, because probably they don't care about the church anyway. They're just looking for an excuse not to do church, not to be engaged with the community. Um, and so I would be very leery of churches and church leaders who run and hide during times of crisis mm. uh, or something like that. That's the very time when we need to proclaim the gospel the loudest, right. not hide it. I, exactly. And if no one's doing it, then us as re religious leaders need to step up and yeah. do that. Yeah. We needed a Joel at that time mm -hmm. to say, hey, this is when you should be leading not taking a step back. Right. Um, and, and I think we're going to see more of that. It's not tied just to what happened two years ago. Yeah. Uh, but it, it continues to be tied on what's going on in the culture uh, around us. So, yeah. Do you have another application? Um, I think I've already said it, but again, uh, God, all he wants is to hear a repentant heart. Yeah. And he'll always listen. And that all it takes is repent. <laughs> um, and you're like, well, that sounds easy, but it's not, you know, because it goes back to laying down the pride laying down, um, the envy, the comparison, the bitterness, you know, whatever symptom, you know, as, as human beings we're all dealing with at the time of laying it all down and saying, me as a human being, I can't do this. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I can't run to other things and fix the problem because it just makes life and things miserable. <laughs> and we see that with the people here in Israel trying to find other ways to fix the problem and there's nothing to fix the problem yeah. except lament like fast come back to me mm -hmm. and as 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 human beings that's all we need to do is to just get on our knees like you know and just say lord i'm sorry i admit you know what i mean that i messed up and i can't do this on my own yeah yeah um i, I want to talk more about that idea of 
repentance, and, and that's kind of tied to, to one of my applications. Mm-hmm. I want to back up just a little bit, though, because comparing Joel to Hosea, and I think there's a reason why these two books are grouped together in, in the canon of Scripture. Hosea also talks about a lot of the suffering and the disaster that people are doing, and, and a lot of it, Hosea, is ta- what he's talking about is wicked leadership, wicked kings, um, evil things that leaders are doing, and, and yeah. we can all understand this. Joel, however, the problem in Joel is is what a lot of times we describe as natural disasters, right? Mm -hmm. There's no evil person sending these locusts after Israel the way that wicked rulers were setting up idols in the temple during the time of Hosea. Yeah. Um, To me, one of the messages of of Joel that's kind of shining through here is that God uses what we call natural disasters like locust swarms and droughts to get our attention and call us to return. So even the natural disasters, even the things that we would put purely in the category of just dumb bad luck, God says, no, that's not dumb bad luck. That's actually something that I ordained. That's actually something that I'm using for the sake of your redemption. Mm. Okay? And a lot of times, we talked about this last week in our overview. Yeah. Um, can God use things like a hurricane? or yes. an earthquake, or a tornado, or a fire to get our attention, you better you believe better. Yeah. Can God use a crashing economy and terrible inflation to get our attention? Absolutely. Can you use COVID? Can God use COVID to get our yeah, attention? attention? Yes. Yeah. And God does use these things to get our attention. Uh, and again, you know, some, some of what I'm about to say is, is probably some people are going to be very offended by, but maybe... You know, the thing you need to be praying for is not for God to fix your financial problems or your job problems or all these things. Maybe you need to lament and turn back to God and repent. Mm. Perhaps the thing that you hate that you're going through in your life right now is the very thing God is using to sanctify you. Mm. And we lose that if we don't have that spiritual view that Kelson was talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. If all you're concerned about is how can I make more money? How can I be more comfortable? How can I be less hungry? Uh, how, how can I, you know, fix all the political and economic issues of, of the, the world around me? Maybe what you're doing is rather than facing the real problem, the sin rot in your heart, you're going out, you're putting out fires uh, around you rather than dealing with the true problem at the core. Yeah, and I, th- I think this is great too of the fact of like <laughs> not praying for others, you know, I mean, yes, like praying for our government, praying for things, but remember to think about praying for your heart too. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we're always like, well, um, not all all the time intentionally, but like making sure they have a convicted heart. They have this. Well, also we should be doing that for ourselves personally. Yeah. Yeah. I um, So one of my, my favorite writers, uh, not a Christian, uh, not a Christian at all, he hated the church, was Voltaire. I don't know if you've ever read mm-hmm. any Voltaire. Uh, I wish I could remember the name of the book. I'm going to have to look it up so I can reference it next week. But Voltaire wrote, he was a a wonderful satirist. He wrote satire. And during Voltaire's time that he lived there in France, uh, again, you had sort of a pre-Marxism trying to develop at that time. And there was this idea that, oh, if we just get the right leaders, if we get the right economic system, if we redistribute wealth, if we do all these things, we can build this utopia. We can build this perfect world. We don't need any kind of supernatural help. We don't need God. We as humans can do this. Voltaire writes this book, and again, he is not a Christian, but I think he touches on something that is very biblical in its heart. He writes this book about a human society that uh, achieves their perfect society, 
And it's more wicked, more evil, more terrible than anything humanity has ever done before. Mm. And yet all the humans have convinced themselves it's just the best thing in the world. Yeah. Okay. Kind of reminds me a little bit of 1984. A there. little bit like 1984. Yeah. Uh, and so Voltaire's whole point in writing this story was that there were people talking about how uh, it would be, you know, they, they would create the best world in, in, ever, but it would just lead to more human suffering. And of course, the word that, that Voltaire would, would not use, that I would use there, is that's the problem of human sin. Yeah. A- and that's why rearranging, you know, economic issues is not going to fix the core problem of our heart. What we need is a savior. Yeah. And Joel says what you need to do in times of natural disaster is you need to lament and you need to turn back to God. Mm. Uh, you need to turn to Him. Yeah. So with that, I'm then gonna gonna kind of transition back into to your application of repentance because I think this is the major theme. Yes. Um, by the way, when you're doing biblical interpretation, a good way to find your your application is find the imperatives, find the commands. Well, Joel one has plenty of those, right? Remember, I told you there's 18 different imperatives here, grouped into seven different uh, different categories. And I think that in the face of disasters, in the face of great loss, um, our response ought to be returning to God. And Joel actually shows us what that looks like. Okay, and so if you if you look at if you reread Joel, mm-hmm. sort of like applying that to yourself so. and saying, "How can I return to God?" Well, first you got to wake up. Yeah, you got to pay attention to the, the 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 destruction around you. The um, the the damage that your sin has caused. You've got to lament. You've got to be ashamed of your sin. You've got to repent of your sin. You've got to turn back from your sin. Uh, And you've got to cry out to God and return to him. And this is sort of the movement that that Joel goes through. Spoiler alert, the next section here in chapter 1 is going to be Joel himself doing this. So Joel the prophet isn't saying, you do that and I'm not. He's not a hypocrite. He's saying, I'm going to do this. And so there is this movement in which we, we go from waking up and realizing how bad things are to lament and shame, to then crying out to God and and throwing ourselves upon him for his help and mercy. Mm, Yeah. And I think that ends really well with kind of today. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, good. So we will, uh, next week, we'll do the rest of chapter one. Uh, And Kelsey and I will talk about how deep into chapter two we're going to get next week. Mm -hmm. Um, Just... I just have a feeling. I actually told Kelson this before we started today. I just have this feeling that especially as we start talking about stuff like Day of the Lord, Lord. which is very, very big, okay, it's going to take time for us to get through this. So uh, we'll get, we'll, we'll go through it at, at our pace and we'll just kind of, you know, see, see where we go. Yeah. Um, that's, that's what, that's why we call this casual conversation. right? Because you just never know. You never you know. You know, we talked one theology of coffee theology with coffee where it was only four verses that yeah you know um so you never know and what i love about joel so far and i know we're only one chapter or not even a full chapter i was about to say one of the things i'm I'm loving about joel is it's a very simple book yes and yet there's a lot below the surface Mm -hmm. right there's a, a a lot to talk about and a lot to discuss and we're gonna find that out the more we get into the issue of day of the lord stuff yeah so okay Yep. You want to pray us out? Sure. I'll pray us out. Great. Father God, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you, Lord, for guiding us through your word. And I pray, Lord, that our lives would always reflect your word. Uh, We do not want to simply learn your word uh, to to be good at it, to memorize it. We want it to change and affect our lives. And ultimately, as it changes our lives, we want your gospel and your spirit to change the lives of 
the people that we run into. Um, Father, as our own nation goes through its own crises and disasters and losses, I pray that we would heed the call of Joel, that we would hear, that we would tell, that we would wake up, that we would lament, and that we would cry out to you. It's in your holy name I pray. Amen. We'll see you next week.